Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. I had the great fortune of uh, coming across an excellent author and book. Greg Fasseri wrote the book Gridiron Legacy, just came out recently and was able to, an honor to have Greg come on and talk about his book and the story it tells about his great-grandfather and pro football history. So fortunate to have Greg coming up in just a moment to tell us all about his great book and the story. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And we have a very interesting story that we're going to be talking about tonight. We started this journey probably about a year ago uh, when we had the author on talking about the Maslin Tigers uh, pro football team. And he was in the process of getting his book published, which is the Gridiron Legacy Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. The author is Greg Fasseri. Greg, welcome back to the Pig Pen. Hey, Darren. Great to be back with you. Th- thanks. Yeah, Greg, uh, you know, this this journey that you've had for the book, I know you were anxious, uh, you know, about a year ago, hoping to get published and with COVID and everything delaying everything around the world. Uh, you know, your, your book came out in, in September and uh, really a fantastic book and uh, so excited that, that it launched and uh, the people are getting their hands on it. So how have uh, your life been since this book has been released? Well, it's been a, quite a year. It was a little touch and go, as you said, getting the book delivered um, from the printer in South Korea during the the uh, COVID crisis and the supply chain situation. But it, it fortunately arrived just in time for the start of football season. And we were able to have a big, uh, fun launch party in Atlanta, where I lived um, most of the time in, in, um, in early September. And um, uh, just, you know, I, that was hardly the end of the journey. It's sort of the end of a chapter and now the beginning of an entirely different type of experience, rolling it out and, and, and finally sharing with everybody. It's been, been a blast. Yeah. You, uh, I mean, you've had some big names, uh, you know, contributing to the book uh, with forwards and, uh, you know, help, helping with uh, you know, guiding people to it. Uh, maybe you could mention some of the, those folks that uh, are in the book. Yeah, uh, Franco Harris in particular has been extremely helpful. Um, I've known Franco a little bit off and on growing up. Uh, just met him a few times, but I really uh, got to spend some quality time with him when I was working on an advisory board at the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh um, some about 10 years ago. And I believe it or not, I've been working on the book that long. And um, when he learned about it, he's such a huge sports history and football history 
buff. Uh, he's the head of that committee. Uh, he was very um, proactive in offering his support, which was amazing. And he just said, whenever I was ready, you know, however he could help. And, and I asked him to do the forward eventually. And uh, he jokingly, you know, when I reached back out to him, said, did I did I really say I would do that? <laughs> he said, oh, I'm just kidding, you know. So um, he he wrote a, a beautiful, a heartfelt forward for the book uh, that's really special. And I'm, I'm, you know, honored to have him be a part of it. Great way to kick the book off uh, when you open it up and see it. And, you know, seeing so many other great uh, kindred spirits in, in football history that were supported, you know, the Ken Crippens and Joe Horgans and uh, a, a plethora of others, just uh, adding some great uh, commentary and, and support to, to your writing. And, uh, you know, it, it really is. It's a really, really nice book and very well done. Thanks very much. Yeah, especially uh, the historians Ken, Ken and Mark Ford, both at, at the PFRA, were very um, helpful along the way in, in editing, even and just fact checking and things like that, which was great. And um, Joe Horgan, of course, at the Hall of Fame is just pretty much uh, a cut above everybody else at this point in, in terms of, of football history, pro football history. And and for him to sort of um, you know, uh, give credibility to to the book and 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 say that uh, you know what I discovered in my grandmother's basement of these photographs of, from my great grandfather Bob Shiring from the Massillon Tigers, um, you know, early nineteen hundreds teams was finding like finding a constitution to them um, was, was really uh, you know special and and I'm glad he was willing to. Um, lend support as well you told us that before that you you saw the the photographs at your grandmother's basement and uh your family knew a little bit about what they were about but not a whole lot and it's uh, really started off your 10-year journey where, where did the journey go from there from from your grandmother's basement how, how did you approach uh getting the history on your great-grandfather yeah there's there's a big difference between family lore and and facts right? so, so you might get bits and pieces just little golden nuggets you know from the from the family just something about um him being a great pro player before the nfl and in a and a couple of pictures that hung on the wall and that he um uh, they were world champions whatever that meant but it was before the nfl you know none of it all you know kind of made sense in, in any cohesive way but it wasn't until she passed away in, in 2007 and we cleaned out her house in this little industrial suburb of pittsburgh called wilmerding um where they were you know a, a prominent family in, in that town uh, and I, I kind of understood that it was because of my great-grandfather and his reputation that led him to become a, a business professional and, and sort of the uh, a magistrate and a, a in in the town and and a leader and that that sort of he was the patriarch of, of the family and everything that was to come. So um, when we cleaned out her house and I found this another box that you know I have no idea where it was my whole life because I was always in that house and it was just in the basement you know near the other things that I was always around uh, um, full of. of football photos from the early 1900s that connected his career, obviously, that I I, I knew immediately. I, I remember saying to my mother that I was going to do something with these, and I didn't know what that was at the time, but it it meant researching 
and identifying them and, and um, eventually leading me to the, to the Hall of Fame once I had enough uh, information, especially with the help of Bob Carroll, who was the founder of the Pro Football Researchers Association. Before he passed away, I was lucky enough to connect with him and, and give me a start on identifying some of these. And he really said, you know, you really need to get this to the Hall of Fame and, and see what Joe has to say, because he and Joe worked together on, on pretty much every article that's online on the PFRA site um, on the early game. So um, with that validation is the word I was looking for earlier. Um, it, it just kept the wind at my back, you know, and in, in my sails to, to keep going. And um, once we had them all identified and and uh, Joe and Salim Chowdhury and John Kendall, all the great folks at the Hall of Fame said, you know, look, if you can com combine these photos with the narrative that's still incomplete uh, on on the, the, the 1906 gambling scandal and, and this kind of cold case that's still out there and, you know, was Blondie Wallace guilty or not? Was, you know, was he in colluding with the gamblers um it, it would be a really special story because there's still much to be known about that yeah it uh you know that's the basic uh you know storyline that you have you sort of uh, from what i gathered from from reading it you sort of have you know these these two stalwarts of early pro football your, your great-grandfather bob shiring and blodney wallace who they were sort of uh uh, I guess nemesis is throughout their, their pro careers and it, but they, their careers sort of paralleled each other. They played on uh, great teams that opposed each other uh, in two different States. And, but you took, you know, that story and you sort of made it uh, uh, almost um, a great encyclopedia of the first two decades of, of pro football. And I found that very interesting. You went all the way back to the beginning and started talking about the John Brilliers and Pudge Heffelfingers and, you know, the Pittsburgh area, telling a story of Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania football and then the shift into Ohio. Uh, but keeping these central figures uh, in line through the story, I, I just thought, thought that was uh, incredibly brilliant and uh, a genius uh, story. Great, great uh, story method. Thanks. That that is kind of how how it worked out, you know. And and I don't know if nemesis is actually the right word because that sort of implies uh, tension between the two of them. You know, uh, they certainly faced off as rivals from the early Homestead teams um, that were world champions in 1900, 1901. You know, I think 1901 was the first year that Philadelphia came into the picture in the pro football with Blondie Wallace and challenged Homestead and Homestead agreed to go, go across this state and play them. Um, and, and won again in 1901, 1902, but um, they, they never, I never found any quote um, from Bob Shiring about Blondie. And, and, and the only things I ever read Blondie said about Bob were very complimentary about his play and, um, the, the real rivalry that developed uh, and, and animosity was between Blondie and, and Maslin's uh, manager, um, E.J. Stewart, uh, out once um, the game moved west out to Ohio after 1902. I mean, this E.J. Stewart was the original amateur quarterback for Maslin. Um in 1901, 1902, and, and in 1903, he comes up with the idea to pitch the concept of pro football to the uh, 
uh, the industrialists, the wealthy business people around Maslin and, and say, hey, these guys, these players from Pittsburgh are available. You know, uh, they're not playing professionally anymore. We could bring a few out and really, you know, uh, dominate out here. So uh, he successfully pulled that off and, and brought Shiring and three of his teammates from um, uh, the Pittsburgh uh, professionals or the stars that they were called in 1902 and that we're just playing amateur again in 1903 for the for the last championship game against Akron in 1903, and that sort of started the ball rolling in Ohio. And, and then eventually, um, you know, Blondie comes out uh, when Canton decides to to jump in the mix in in, uh, in 1904 1905. Uh, Canton's captain was injured in the game, and and they they went and recruited Blondie to come and take over, and, and the 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 negotiations because Blondie was really the, the the captain, player, captain, and manager. So you know there were things on the field that were one thing, but but the the, the big rivalry escalated through the the, the the management negotiations and 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 this EJ Stewart character was aside from being um, an initial quarterback, then the manager of the team, he was also the sports editor for the Maslin newspaper. He'd also been a you know city clerk. So he wore a lot of hats around Maslin. And he really sort of figured out, kind of like Dave Barry did in Latrobe, uh, as a newspaper editor and you know Latrobe uh, team manager, you know, for Brailler and the others, that he could sell tickets through the paper and, and drive this rivalry, you know, with Greensburg and Latrobe's case and Maslin, he, he just sort of stoked this, right? always poking the people in Canton um, for the benefit of selling tickets and newspapers. And um, <laughs> he, he really got under, you know, Blondie's uh, skin and, you know, got his go several times. And Blondie just wasn't having it. He was a very strong, you know, willed and smart uh, guy, having played at Penn and been a national champion and elected captain before he dropped out of school uh, for his senior year. But uh, and he, he really st started pro football in Philadelphia, you know, with, with Connie Mack. He got Connie Mack to invest in the first teams there. And um, so he had experience, you know, with with negotiation in the, the business side of the game. And he wasn't going to be taken advantage of by by this E.J. Stewart guy. And um, <laughs> in the end, it, it just led to a rivalry that <laughs> hasn't never died in, in Stark County. Yeah. That's uh, I mean, he's, he's definitely an interesting character. I, I know uh, he, even after playing in Philadelphia a little bit, uh, Franklin, Pennsylvania had a team, which is not too far from where I am in Erie. Uh, yeah. They had a, a champion team uh, like 1902, 1903. Yeah, that was 1903, you know, arguably yeah. maybe the best team ever, of, of all of them. I mean, they were incredibly dominant, but they didn't really have any competition without the teams from Pittsburgh in the mix. But the team he assembled there was, you know, un unparalleled. Yeah, it was, uh, but it's just an interesting thing how, you know, all these teams, uh, you know, in early football, they said, hey, we're going to be the best team. They'd throw a lot of money, grab the best players that they could, and they'd see like after a year or two, hey, this isn't uh, this is costing us money. This is going to make us go in, you know, go in the negative here a little bit financially. And then that sort of shifted to Ohio, and they they saw you know their teams uh, up and down and on the ledgers, and uh, it's just a, a brilliant story. It's a, a great story, and I'm glad you could put it all together in one place where you know people could enjoy it and put the connections and you know link those uh, those stories together. 
because uh, I've only read them separately, you know, as, as teams and newspaper right. articles and things like that. So I, I was really surprised and uh, pleasantly surprised and really enjoyed that aspect of the, your, the early part of your book. Yeah, which th I, thanks so much. I think the beauty of it is a lot in the detail and in, in the flow of the story as an author. You know, the PFRA did a great job of like writing a story on each year. And that's about, um, but otherwise you just get little bits and pieces and, 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 and several books or, or articles, but uh, to really understand the, the, the characters a, a little better and, and um, the, the decision-making and the consequences of the, their, their various decisions that they had to make at different times. I mean, Blondie was such a trailblazer that, you know, he, he went all in and took financial response, full financial control and responsibility for that team in Canton in, in 1906 when the Canton club lost money itself in 1905 and said they weren't going to support it anymore. He said, fine, I'll do it. You know, and no professional team had ever made money before. So it was a huge gamble and he had to make all the, you know, contractual decisions and, 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 and uh, salary decisions himself and, 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 you know, whatever they, they made or lost, you know, it, it was on him. So um, he had a lot on it on his mind and his back. He didn't even play, you know, that season part because he had so much else to do. But uh, um, you know, trying to build a team that would beat Maslin uh, after losing to them in you know in 1905 at, when he had guaranteed victory, you know, that his reputation was on the line too, and he was trying to. Uh, it turns out, you know, build a, a business and, and, and become a resident of Canton after that was his ultimate goal. And, and that would only happen, you know, success if he won. So he had a lot you know, um, on the line and, and um, it's it part of the drama of it all. So they're recruiting these players from all around the country. Uh, we know, you know, your, your great grandfather coming from Pittsburgh to play up in Maslin, you know, Canton was doing the same thing. A few of the other teams in the area were probably doing similar things. Now, what were like the housing arrangements for the, these players that would come in from out of, out of state and out of town? Uh, mm -hmm. Did they board them up somewhere or? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, growing up, I had always just kind of assumed or maybe heard, I can't be sure with it. Maybe my grandfather went back and forth on the train to the games on the weekend from Pittsburgh, where he worked for the Westinghouse Corporation or Westinghouse Airbreak. It still exists today, Wabco, amazingly. Mm -hmm. um, but no, it turns out they he would go out there and all of them would for the season and they would get a break from work. You know, they get excused um, and they lived uh, in, in a hotel uh, each team one, you know, Matt, uh, I think in, not sure I'm going to get this right. One of them was the Cortland hotel. And I'm, I can't recall for sure if that was Maslin or Canton. And there was another hotel in the other town. And um, in Maslin, there was a, an, a, an athletic club called the Maslin athletic club. And um, it still stands to the building is still there. And uh, I visit it, you know, when I, when I go there, it's, it's an incredible facility. It had uh, hardwood, you know, gym, basketball floor, uh, an elevated running track, like the old days around, you know, uh, above the floor, the, the floor, um, a big swimming pool in the basement. You know, um, and uh, there are still two stone tigers, you know, on, on the side of, of the front doors until recently. Uh, there's a lot of renovation going on there. And, and it, but the building has has survived and it's uh, it's pretty pretty special 
Yeah. No, I think uh, you, you tell the story really well. Uh, you know, you tell definitely tell how Maslin got their uh, moniker of, of the Tigers. And I'd like you to share it with us. And you also have uh, some some stories which are pretty uh, plausible of how the how Canton became the Bulldogs. If you, you don't mind sharing those. Uh, right. That was fun. Well, the first one was easy. I mean, that was pretty well known how EJ Stewart, when he was, um, you know, managing the, the team, I guess, in, in 1903, their first um, big year uh, had to go and, and buy some uniforms. And and there was a local sporting goods store, apparently in Maslin and uh, all they had in any volume was Princeton Tigers jerseys because they were, you know, the best college team uh, in the country pretty much every year, along with Yale. And, um, you know, Harvard was never quite up to their level. And Penn kind of came along later and the others were sort of uh, afterthoughts. But um, so, you know, uh, he bought black jerseys with orange stripes on the sleeves and they became the Maslin Tigers. And that, that was that. So, um I really enjoyed uh, recently speaking at Maslin High School two days before the rivalry game with Canton a couple of weeks ago and, and sharing that story with him. And <laughs> I just they love it. You know, they, they, they don't even know these things. So Canton, on the other hand, I had never heard, you know, any related story. And I was when I got to the point in the book to, to think about that and, and maybe write about it, I was excited. I was like, I'm going to go down that route and figure this one out now. And I mean, I had all the resources, all the Canton newspapers and, you know, going day by day, week by week. And, and to find I thought it would be a revelation to find the first time that the Canton repository mentioned the the, the Canton Bulldogs. And, and, and I had several cartoons and things, you know, that from uh, that came into my collection over time, but I never really organized them or gone sequentially. And. Darn it. You know, when, when I when I finally did, it was kind of anticlimactic. It was just there was no explanation. It was just one day in the in the toward the end of the 1906 season, right before the, the big match, first matchup with Maslin when when the Canton team was down at Penn State training that um, they just start calling them the Bulldogs. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> can I sorry, some, some story there I, I, you know was it Blondie's idea was it the newspaper who, who came up with this there there was nothing there and um so I just started sort of letting that sink in and marinate and and finally it just dawned on me that you know if if Maslin took the Princeton Tigers can probably you know, being the rival, took the Yale Bulldogs as the the next best name. You know, to to have as big a brand as the Tigers did, and um, so that's my guess. And I I put it in the book. You know, and I clearly you know, state as my guess and opinion, but uh, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it, I never had put that connection together, and I had wondered that myself. You know, I knew the story of Maslin. Uh, I either learned it from you or from George Bazik or, or you know, one of the historians down that way. And, uh, you know, nobody could ever explain where the Bulldogs came from. But just like you said, it just popped up in a newspaper one day and that's what they were from there on. And uh, but reading that in a book, I, it was really refreshing and it sort of brings some uh, some closure to me. And I think that's a very plausible explanation of why, because, you know, definitely college football back in that time was uh, far bigger than professional football. And, you know, pro, pro football was could, could only aspire and hope to be 
you know, half of what college football was at the time. But, uh, you know, those two powerhouses of Princeton and Yale, they were definitely the, uh, the, the, the caveats of uh, the gridiron for sure. Definitely. You know, and, and, and Blondie, you know, tried to uh, break that up a few years later. I mean, Yale and, and Princeton dominated through the, all the 1870s, 80s, 90s. But it wasn't probably until late 1890s and um, early 1900s that Penn got in the mix and, and maybe snuck in a couple championships. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. Now, uh, some other elements of the book. Uh, you know, you have some some great graphics in there of, you know, newspaper clippings and uh, souvenir programs uh, from some of the games and photographs and you know, just some uh, really a, a smorgasbord of uh, delight for the football historian as we're, you're reading these stories and these little sidebars that they take you on that really complement the book. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very well done and, uh, you know, it was extremely entertaining and very, very colorful. And I also love the way how you took some, some of the pages, uh, you know, especially maybe starting a chapter was a, a big story and you enlarge the letters to, to put emphasis on it and some colorful background to it. And it leads you into the story. It was just, I found it extremely pleasing to the eye and, uh, uh, to the entertainment value and the learning process of, uh, you know, what this book has to offer. So I thank you for that. It's really quite a pleasure. And I think, uh, the listeners that, that go and buy this book, I think you will find it extremely, um, you know, pleasing as well. Well, thanks so much. You, you know, what, what I didn't expect, um, in the, in the design of the book was, I, I thought my job would be done just, just writing it. And, and I had been working with, um, uh, a company that was helping with edit layout and design and everything. And at some point I said, okay, we paused after the first half of the book. And I said, I want to take a break from all this and, and work on the design layout of that. Now uh, let's do that for a while. And, and so we got into that and, and I thought they were going to do that. And they said they would do that. And they just said, well, put, you know, your favorite pictures in the folders and we'll, we'll work on it. And, and magically I, I thought it would be done. And, of course, nothing's that simple. And I, I was totally not satisfied with their first effort at, at placing pictures. And, you know, they weren't even on the pages where they were, you know, referenced in the text. I said, oh, my gosh. So I ended up, long story short, having to do it myself. And 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 it turned out to be incredibly fun. Uh, I, I didn't look at it as a, as a burden at all. I just I, I loved looking at my text and saying, okay, what picture should be there? And, and if, if I didn't have one, I went and found it somewhere online or, or, or through a dealer, a dealer or a book and, uh, or the hall of fame. And, and I, I just had a vision for, you know, the right pictures being in the right places and balancing the color with all the old black and white ones. You had to have enough color in there. But, um, I did have help with, from, a, from, from a great layout guy who, 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 I, I just basically put up my vision on, on PowerPoint pages, and which was totally revolutionary to him. He said, nobody ever thought this. I said, I want to do this myself. He said, you can't do the software. I said, well, fine, I'll just put it on a PowerPoint and then you put it in the software. So <laughs> he did. And that's, he said, you know, I said, I don't know how, how else you would do it for how, how, how have you done every other book in your career? And he said, I, I, I don't know, but we have, and, but this makes sense and let's keep going. And, so we, of course, he had ideas and input and 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 refined pictures and and 
but and we came up with sort of a, a, a flow where the beginning of each chapter had a, a main picture, sort of like you said, to, to introduce one of the most powerful pictures, you know, to 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 enter that chapter and um, emphasize, sort of give a, a hint of what was to come. Um, so from there, it was just a patchwork, uh, trying to make things uh, different and, and, and have some variety and people and, and 3D objects, programs, tickets, pennants, you know, whatever I, I collected over time. I, I just, it was, uh, some of them, I just took pictures myself and, and cropped them and, and, and let him, you know, format them for, for the, for the chapter. So it was just a big art project that, that was kind of unexpected. And, and, but I think, you know, maybe the most rewarding part of the whole thing. Uh, well, the magic that you and your team did—it's uh, it definitely is uh, in, uh, effective. You know, it's a tells an effective story, and you know, you know, talking about you know, you have that the general story like we talked about, but you have some of these what I'm I'm calling sort of sidebar stories, and I think maybe uh, at least one of them came about maybe your research it took you down a road to maybe uh, changing history. Uh, there's one aspect of it, and I know you wrote a PFRA a piece in the Coffin Corner a few years back on the first professional pass in some information that you garnered that uh, changes what was believed for you know decades as being the first professional pass. And so maybe you, if you don't mind talking about that a little bit. Sure. I mean, uh, anybody, people listening to this podcast um, most likely know the name Peggy Parrott, uh, George Peggy Parrott. He was just up for... Uh, on the ballot from the PFRA this past month for for the Hall of Very Good, uh, among a long list of others, and so he he's a about as big a name as it gets from that that pre NFL period. Um, he was um, um, known for the funny story of being outed at, uh, when he played in college at Case University uh, for for wearing the disguise on his face and. Um, and playing under the name Jimmy Murphy. And, uh, but when, when the reporters, he took off on this long touchdown run and people sort of figured out who he was and he got called into the president's office and, you know, said, I understand you're playing professionally, you know, somewhere, is that true? And he just said, absolutely. And, he, <laughs> and I do it again. And he was kicked out. <laughs> so, so, uh, he went on to play for for Maslin uh, the next year, and um, 1906, which was the big year of, of the rule changes and the first four pass. And forever, he's been, you know, just accepted as as, as the quarterback who you know who threw the first first four pass uh, against Moundsville Benwood from West Virginia, and you know Dan, you know uh, Bullet Riley whose real name was Polakowski, you know, because he was from Canton and didn't want to be known that he was playing for Maslin, uh, caught the pass. And, um, but it never kind of, you know, as, as I'm writing it, it didn't add up that that was kind of about the fourth or fifth game of the season. I'm like, is it possible that, you know, the pass happened before that? And in, in my um, research, in, developed a friendly relationship with Tim Heslop, who's a volunteer at the Hall of Fame. And he, he would bounce ideas and uh, fact check 
with me for various articles and projects he worked on over time. And, and he always joked with me, he said, I don't know about your great grandfather snapping the ball for the first forward pass. You know, one of these days we're going to prove that it was somebody else. You know, And I said, okay, you just, and he said, I'm working on this project now. And I said, well, let me know how that works out. And um, so just about that time, actually a couple of years before that, I'd been to Maslin and had a real treat um, by being taken into the archives of the Maslin Booster Club by some real old timers, you know, and guys named like um, um, Gene Berner, I think was the head of the club at that time, who's passed away since. And Ron Prunty, who's still with us, incredible, incredible Jack LaLanne type, very fit guy who still does the video for the Maslin High School games. And he, he carries a camera, a video camera around with him almost everywhere he goes. He's <laughs> like doing candy camera. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago and he came into the Maslin Museum with his video camera. And um, the day I was in this old archive, this, this old middle school where, where they kept like Paul Brown's hat and, you know, uh, just amazing things. He got out some original 1906 newspapers that he thought I'd be interested in, and right. And he actually went, like, had them laminated, like the vision to, that they were important, well before that, because he knew enough about football and that you know these games that this they should be protected. And right away, I I noticed that these were daily papers from the 1906 season. And that the only thing ever on uh, microfilm in the libraries in Maslin or even in Columbus, like the state libraries, were the weekend papers of, of the Maslin Gleaner. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is nobody's ever, I mean, seen these. And so he was nice enough to make copies of them and, you know, at Kinko's and, and send me a big tube of these papers that sat in my office for a couple of years until I got to the part of the book I was ready to write about that season after writing about the Pittsburgh era. And I'm going through these papers sequentially and, 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 um, you know, there it is, you know, one day in, in like the second game of the season, it says clear as a bell, you know, Tigers throw forward pass for the first time. Um, Moran, you know, worked the pass beautifully to parrot for, you know, at two touchdowns or something like, what, who, who, Moran? I mean, who, how did that happen? How was he the quarterback? And what turned out was Blondie Wallace had stolen the, the tight end, or they call it end at that time, a guy named Clark Schrantz from Madison, paid him more money so uh, to go to the Bulldogs. So they were short an end and they took Parrott because he was a basketball player and had good hands and they moved him up to end and, and Charlie Moran had played a lot of quarterback at Tennessee or Vanderbilt. He played at some different Southern schools and they, they plugged him in there. And, and that was their plan, you know, to go through the season. And um, the first week there was no forward passing. It was a lot of mud and, you know, there was no evidence of a pass for them or, or the Canton team. Um, but um, the, you know, it, it just, couldn't have been more clear. It was black and white. So I called uh, Tim up and I said, Hey, Tim, how's that project going? He's like, Oh, Greg, you know, I got, we got some bad news for you. You know, we got on whatever date, October 15th or something, some other Shelby threw a forward pass um, on this Sunday, you know, and so on. We don't know who the quarterback was, but you know, it says there was a pass. And, And I said, 
what day was that? And he says, October, I think it was the 15th. And I said, Tim, I think I got you by a day. <laughs> and he says, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I got He said, how did you get that gleaner? I said, where, where did you get that? You know, did you get it from the Massillon Museum? I said, no. I said, I can't tell you. I'd have to kill you um, <laughs> until, until the book's done. But um, he said, son of a gun, I just wrote the article for the PFRA and submitted it. It's gone to print. After all these years, I thought we had a scoop. And I said, well, it looks like I'm going to have to write the next one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he said, darn it, go, go for it. And, but he was glad I did. You know, we're sort of partners in, in research. But um, we were glad to be able to put a name with it and have something so definitive. Um, but in the end, I was even personally glad that yes my great-grandfather still did snap the ball for the first four pass even though yeah. it was to a different quarterback yeah he, he couldn't disprove that part of his uh his gold hoodie right. <laughs> so, but sadly uh moran got hurt in that game and and, and and Barrett ended up coming back in as quarterback for the rest of the season and, and that's how he was you know through a pass a couple of weeks later so <laughs> Wow, that, that's incredible. That's a great story, and glad you could uh, you know preserve that football history and make it clear and uh, bring the, the recognition that uh, Moran and uh, you know the others uh, deserve to get for, for throwing that first forward pass. So he's a, he's a pretty prominent guy later in life as a baseball umpire too. They called him Uncle Charlie. He was a major league umpire until the '30s, and um, so he's pretty. You know, he also coached at um i think it's called center college in kentucky when they beat um uh i think it was harvard for it went like they called it the biggest upset of the first oh yeah yeah half of the century or something like that um oh so, so. he was the coach of center. He, okay. he, he was oh yeah. very interesting hmm very nice now I, I guess you know the 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 main part of your your story is you know learning about your, your great-grandfather and he is like you said a very central figure in really you you bring it into a, a nice story out of uh you know probably one of the darkest times of professional football ever and uh you know i don't know how, how much you want to get into that or not but i would love to hear some of the basics at least to, to whet our appetite uh, of what's in the book yeah thank, you know I, I think there's a lot um deeper themes in in human themes to, to the story than just a football history that that really uh, resonate with people as and as i go out and i'm doing speaking events now and and, and opportunities like this um that um some of these events are with business people and they want me to have business themes and and the one i'll be doing next week in atlanta focuses on integrity and leadership and, and you, the 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 character uh, of you know my great grandfather that I, I always heard about and then I you know was able to document in so many ways in publications was so uh, clear that that even as only an eighth grade graduate you know that there was something about him that was in his character that led his peer his his fellow players who were all Americans in the Ivy League and, 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 you know, Notre Dame and other, other schools that he would be their captain. I mean, that's pretty amazing really when you think about it, special. Yeah. So it was no surprise then when these, a gambler or, 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 or um, I don't want to get too much into the story, but somebody approached him uh, with a bribe that that he refused it and this is like what my grandmother was always proud of you know that he 
had the the strength of character to say no and, and to report it. And even though he reported it to his coach and which got reported to EJ Stewart, the manager, and, and they kind of made a, a big mess of the whole thing, which is, is really interesting, all the twists and turns of the drama from there. And, um, and it, it led to this cold case that's existed ever since uh, until now um, that um, when, when you look at the decisions that the different people made, you know, through this crisis, basically, and whether it was Blondie Wallace and how he sort of goes down in history as being a bad guy, but why, you know, was it true? Was it not? And that's really the, the essence of, of, the, of the mystery that I've been able to uh, uncover by, by discovering a, a court file um, in, in, in Ohio, Blondie had sued the, uh, the Massillon newspaper and team for libel because um, his reputation was being trashed and he he recognized he wouldn't have his future in Canton if, if he couldn't clear his name. And so uh, he was never really able to do so. And, and finding this case finally that never got to court because officially he ran out of money. Um, but everybody still is kind of assumed, especially since he became kind of a career criminal later, it was known that he was a boot, the king of the bootleggers and back in New Jersey, where he grew up in Atlantic City during Prohibition. Uh, he must have been a bad guy. He must have been guilty, you know, but there was never any evidence. And but people said, well, they might have paid him off to go away or he knew he was guilty and he he let it drop. And, you know, let uh finding the the depositions from from the people that were involved it really clarifies exactly what happened and, and um, again i don't want to spoil the the outcome but it's not what they said in the newspapers you know they, they there were lots of lies and no surprise you know being in mistruths uh being you know bantied about in in, in the papers so um, it's uh, it's a revelation to to uh, I, I meticulously pick the best excerpts from the case and and put them word for word in the book. So I couldn't I figured I couldn't do a better job, you know, of, of uh, you know articulating what they said themselves. So I just list some some really the juiciest parts of the case for people to 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 uh, read for themselves exactly what happened. So, um, but. You know, the, whether it was Blondie's sort of flirtation, you know, with, with uh, the, the some of the people involved and, you know, how he handled it and chose to handle it versus how, sorry, really affected the direction of their lives a afterward. And I think that that's one of the big lessons uh, in, in the story, whether it's in business or sports or, you know, whatever aspect of life is, is um um how how your <laughs> reputation and uh, um decisions you make uh have consequences so. yeah you you did it uh you know so so beautifully the way that you you know you crescendoed the story and uh you know brought it to its peak you know near the end and uh you know without spoiling it i all i can tell you as a reader uh, there's a sense of nostalgic uh, euphoria and uh, you know, just some, so, so just a great feeling. I guess I can't really explain the feeling of, you know, reading it and you're, you know, 
it's it's a great story and I'm, I'm glad that you were able to record it and print and you know for all ages to enjoy going forward you cleared up some some great uh you know mysteries of football uh and uh you know even you know figured out some things that uh you know re- rewrote history such as the, the first forward pass in professional football uh so i don't want to leave the the uh, listeners any longer uh why don't you go ahead and tell us the title of the book again and where folks can get a copy mm-hmm. so it's called gridiron legacy pro football's missing origin story um it's available at the book's website gridironlegacy.com and uh, for now, that's the only place that it's available online. Um, I spent actually a good bit of today trying to work with Amazon to figure out a way to uh, get them to print and distribute it. But they they aren't uh, they're just launching a beta actually to be able to print oversized hardback, you know, color books. But there's very limited options in terms of, you know, the, the specs and things. And it just, it didn't work out technically or financially. So um, we're going to keep trying to find some other distribution sources, but, but for now uh, that that's the only place it's available. Oh, folks, uh, we will have links to it in the show notes of this uh, podcast. We'll also have it on the corresponding article uh, on pigskin dispatch in case you're in the car can't don't have a pencil to write it down well don't worry we'll get you the links to, to get you to greg and his fantastic book uh which is uh you know needs to be in your collection of, of football history books and that uh, definitely tells a great story a great era in uh, you know, the start of professional football so so uh, greg for sorry thank you very much for uh joining us here and telling us your story of your family and of pro football and uh for doing this uh great work of art you know it really is a work of art uh, that you you've done in uh, or in distribution of thanks darren i appreciate that so much it's always good to be with you peeking up at the clock the time's running down we're going to go into victory formation take a knee and let this baby run out thanks for joining us we'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast we invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour.
How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.